Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. In this episode, I'm going to be looking at the 2004 book Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Bo. Hi. Thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Um, I hadn't heard of this book until you yeah. suggested it, and it's actually on YouTube as an audio. Yeah, the whole it, it's an easy one to, for people to get hold of because it's free on Audible, and I think the, I think the full version is on YouTube as well. So anyone who wants it can can get hold of it. And it's only about nine hours, which isn't all that long, really. Yeah. Um, and I listen to everything on 2XP, so it's only like four and a half hours. It was, I mean, it's quite, quite easy to get through. Um, but it, it is an interesting book, though, isn't it? I it's, found it really interesting. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it opened it's a my very, eyes on a couple of things. It's a very influential book. It's one of those ones that a lot of people have read, or most people have read, um, because it's got a, quite a strong critique, critique of, the, of the global American empire, you know, the gay. Um, and it is kind of building on a theme, you know, I, I'm reminded of that quote by John Adams as I was reading it. Um, John Adams said, there's, there's only two sure ways to conquer a nation. One is through the sword, the other is through debt. And that's essentially what this book is going on about. So um, should, should we start by describing the basic scam that, that's outlined in this thing? So, so the basic scam is the US will, through... Um, intermediaries such as such as big corporations will go into a country um, and present them with these massively inflated economic plans of of what they can do for this country so they, they will go into a guatemala or a venezuela or whatever it is i mean hopefully in iraq or they actually did it with saudi and they will say okay so you know you're you're underdeveloped at the moment we think you can grow at these rates and you're going to have this fabulous country on the other side of it um, and they put out these completely unrealistic growth rates. Um, and on the back of that, they will make them a large loan from either the US or the World Bank or one of these other organisations. Now, that money doesn't actually um, go straight to the country for them to spend and then develop. What actually happens is that money is created through fiat magic. The money is then sent to US corporations. Um, who will then come in and do some infrastructure work. That infrastructure work will actually be based around resource extraction. So making sure that ports are developed, um, oil wells, roads service the, the ports and the oil wells, electrical grid to support this kind of thing. And US corporations will basically extract the resources from, from the country. Um, and the debt will be so high, the growth assumptions so unrealistic, that that... Um, economic growth never actually materialises. And, and what basically happens then is that because the country then can't pay their debt and it is designed, he, he claims that it is designed this way, um, the country will inevitably default on the debt. Now you might think, okay, well that's bad. Who, you know, who would make a loan knowing that it's going to default? But you've got to remember, the country never actually got the money in the first place. The, funny, the money was created through fiat magic and it went straight to US corporations. So the money has already ended up in the US hands at this point. Mm. Um, and when the country defaults, they then use this as an opportunity to say, oh, look, you've defaulted. So I'll tell you what, we're going to restructure your debt, um, but we want some favours. We want US military bases in your country. We want cheaper oil or cheaper resources, whatever it is. Um, you vote with us on the next um, UN vote, or you basically, you know, you, you, you outsource your UN vote to us. Mm. Um, and we're going to restructure the debt so that you still have to pay it anyway, but now with more interest over a longer time period. And it's basically a way of ensnaring a country with debt. So the, the central charge of it is actually quite powerful. Mm. What did you make of 
essentially that, that the, the underlying modus operandi that's, that's presented in the book. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. I, I sort of already knew, I already knew about it, hmm. um, but it put a bit more flesh on the bones for me. Hmm. It told me a bit more of the nuts and bolts, the actual mechanisms, the cogs that make that work. Um, so, yeah, they'll, they'll go to a, a country, a struggling country, mm. and uh, offer them giant loans, either from the World Bank, uh, the International Monetary Fund, or just the US Treasury. Mm. Um, and the guy that wrote this, he worked for a, a consultancy company. Maine. Maine. Yes. Um, there's a few companies like this, Halliburton, Brown and Root, Stone and Webster, Bechtel, a mm. um, couple of those I'd never heard of before, heard of Halliburton before, but I'd never heard of Brown and Root, for example. Anyway, he mm. worked for one of the main ones called Maine, which doesn't ex actually exist anymore. He was doing all his stuff in the 70s mainly, wasn't he? Yes. Um, so that's something to mention. It's, it's, his involvement in this is back in the 70s. Anyway, um, so first of all, those consultancy firms go in there. Mm. And they may or may not be connected to the intelligence services like the NSA. So that's, yeah, um, we, we, we but, get into this, but that's one yeah. of the bits that I have some doubts about, yeah. Um, and those companies go in there and say, look, you really need this giant amount of money, mm. hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars from the World Bank or from the US Treasury. Uh, we'll then build, one of the main ones is electricity, a whole mm. electricity grid and power stations and dams and everything, if nothing else, to keep building more things like airports and, and seaports. Mm and uh, all, all sorts of things, everything you need or supposed to need for a modern, industrialised, competitive country. Um, and they tell them that you're going to get crazy growth, 15, yes. 20%, 30% growth every year for the next 25 that years. That was one of the first... Which is, which is a nonsense. Yeah, it's one of the first examples. Basically, he went off as a young man, so he had been recruited to do this. He went off as a young man and he had with him an old hand who, who, had, who had done this many times. And the old man was basically saying, look, I've been forecasting electrical growth consumption my entire life. I have never seen growth higher than 6% a year. Mm. And yet you're producing economic forecasts that are saying it's going to be in the low 20s mm. for this underdeveloped Ecuador or whatever it was. Mm. He's saying that's nonsense. What are you doing? That's complete nonsense. Right, anyway, the old man got fired and he got promoted. Yeah. And so the, sort of the key to the scam is that original massively inflated projection. Yeah. Because then the, the country says, yes, they're also threatened if they don't take this, aren't they? They're also threatened. Yeah, oh, there's implicit threats if you yes. don't take the, the golden handshake. Mm. And then these companies come in and they build everything. But the, com the, the country can never, it's designed so that they can never repay the debt. Oh, and there's also a massive interest, mm. massive interest on these debts. Well, and, 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 and the interest is sort of designed so that you know it might look feasible at first mm. but once they default and they will default because that growth doesn't come through um then it can be restructured and the debt right. the debt can be increased and so on so they're, they're never getting out of that debt and as you say the other sort of key thing to it is that the money the original money that was sitting with the the world bank mm. or the international monetary fund or the u.s treasury it never actually goes to that country it goes straight to construction firms in San Francisco or Boston yep. or wherever, Texas somewhere. Mm. So this the poor country, Ecuador or somewhere, Panama, um, never really see the money. They get a, a bit of construction done for them yeah. and then they find out that they can't pay it and then they're in hock yeah. to the United States. So this and is so the classic... Then, yeah. And then they can... Then, then the, 
political side of things, they can really start pulling levers and we want bases in your country. We want you to do all you basically become part of a US soft empire. Is yes. what it is. So it's like if I it's basically empire through engineering and construction scams. That's what it is, right? It's and he yeah. calls it it's 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 a new type of of empire, a post World War Two empire, dollar imperialism. Yeah, a type of imperialism. And and he makes the point that there's been plenty of previous empires, but they knew they were empires. I mean, mm. when when the British Empire was an empire, we knew that we were doing an empire. It's explicitly an empire, right? Yeah, yeah. and we yeah. thought, you know, this is a good thing, and we're going to go out and do it. He makes the point that the Americans do have an empire, but they just don't admit it to themselves. Mm. But they do have an empire. Mm. And actually, the process that you were just laying out with, you know, how the, how the money actually kind of always stays within the West, um, I, I don't know the details, and I'm sure we will start to discover more. I bet when we start to get the real details on what happened with Ukraine over the last couple of years, with that billions in aid, I bet you'll find exactly the same thing happens, is that the money actually never left the US it went straight to US defense contractors yeah, right. and they basically yep. just said, okay, yep. here you can have our Probably. old inventory Probably. and we will use the new money for whatever we're going to use it for. Mm. A couple of things to say real quick is that those guys that go in in the first place as consultants to say, you really should borrow this much money because da, 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 mm. that's what this guy was. John Perkins is his name, isn't it? Mm. And that's what he was. And he called himself, or there was a euphemism for them, economic hitmen. Yes. And that's why it's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, because later in life, he became sort of extremely guilty about what he'd done. And this is sort mm. of his confession in a way. So, so this um, is where I, I have issues with the book, because he describes it as being an extremely overt process when he first joined up, which was to say that somebody actually set him down and said, and used the term economic hitman, and said, yeah, you will be an economic hitman, laid out the scam, the, basically the way, the way that we've described someone it. Someone from the NSA. So, he, so the way that he describes it is he had an uncle who worked for the NSA and he was going to go and work for the NSA, but his uncle said, you know, why don't, why don't you consider something else? And then a job offer arrived from, from Maine, this, you know, big US uh, contractor. And somebody who he calls Claudette mm. um, was this sort of shadowy figure who sort of arrived and laid it all out for him. I wonder if that was a construct. Because what he then goes on to describe over the course of the book is that by the time that he left the firm as a partner many years later, he didn't need to recruit any more economic hitmen because the, basically the machine just reinforced itself. So with his staff, he would either reward or punish them. And so they basically ended up behaving in exactly this fashion. Mm. even though nobody at any point sat them down and it had become yeah. a self-perpetuating machine. Yeah. And I wonder if it, was, if it was always that from the start or whether this Claudette was just a, a convenient, a writer's fiction in order to make the yeah. points. Yeah, was it Claudette or Claudine? Claudine, but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But I actually thought that. Mm. Was this Claudine or Claudette character, um, was that actually an amalgam of, of more than one person or is that even true? Because mm. there's a few things in this book a few things, and I don't want to cast aspersions or get done for slander or anything, but there's a couple of things where I think, mm, I'm not sure if I believe you, John. Yeah. I'm not sure if that, if that is necessarily true or you seem like you're... I've got to say, I do agree with the big picture. So, so the, the big scam as a whole, yeah. I mean, that's definitely oh, yeah, the case. Oh, yeah, no, sorry, I'm talking about the individual yeah. events yes. and things that he describes. Sometimes but I think I, like, I had that's a bit too perfect. A little bit on the nose. And, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But anyway, a couple, if I could just say a couple more quick things about the, in the yeah. general, general thing of the scheme. One is uh, nowadays, 
America aren't the only one that China do exactly this now, don't they? They're, they're getting, exactly in, they're getting this in on the game. all over Africa. Or, well, anywhere they can. Well, the they do it in Britain with the, bloody. The, 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 um, Chinese, the Chinese are doing it with a, with a difference is that the Chinese are basically following the model that America was following 30 years ago. Right. America yeah. is now basically saying, okay, we're going to give you a loan and do all of this stuff. Also, you need to put a rainbow dildo up your bum. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you need to trans your kids and do all this kind of stuff. Whereas the Chinese are basically doing the old scam where they're saying, yeah, yeah, don't worry, you can, your boys can be boys and your girls can be girls, and we're not going to give you any more lectures. We're just, we're just going to screw you over on an economic deal, which looks good by comparison. The other thing is, back in the 60s or the 70s, it seemed like there was a few, a very select elite number of companies like Maine or, or mm. Stone and Webster um, that the intelligence services signed off to do this sort of thing. And now it's just all companies do it just de rigueur. Like Apple's just doing it for itself. Doesn't well, need a green light from anyone. So, so he or makes Nike. The, yeah, it's just exploiting the third world. Doing he makes it the all, point that the top level of these own. firms, it's a revolving door between government and the top levels of of the corporate. So he calls this the corporatocracy. Yeah, yeah. but it's a revolving door between. So that person might be um, secretary of state one year and then president of this company the next year and then go yeah. back the other way. And you know, the, it's it's kind of miasma at the top that yeah. sort of permeates all of these things. Yeah. Well, the mm. classic example is Robert McNamara. Yes. Um, yes. Now, if anyone knows anything about the history of the Vietnam War, mm. they will be familiar with the name Robert McNamara. Mm. He was one of Kennedy's top boys at the, at the State Department. He went on afterwards to become the president of the World Bank. Mm. So there you go. There's a number of people. Um, uh, people like um, Henry Kissinger, mm. um, obviously very famous Kissinger. Uh, George Schultz, Casper Weinberger, even people like Dick Cheney, Dick Helms, head of the CIA, George Bush Senior. Yes, these are people that uh, you know. A big, may, maybe say, take George Bush Senior for example. He's oil an oil man. man, controls, ran a massive oil company. Also had massive stakes in United Fruit. Look that up. Mm. Oh, oh, we 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 touch on that in a also minute. Also, head yeah. of the CIA. And then yeah. vice president, and then president, it's like, mm. yeah. and massively involved in the Carlisle Group. It's like, mm. yeah, he, you know, he's an establishment um, man through and through. Someone like yeah. George Schultz was really high up in 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 Bechtel, or Dick Cheney was super high up in Halliburton. You see how it goes. Yeah. Um, and one other thing I want to say, one is that just corporations are doing all this stuff just for themselves these days, and other other countries do it. China's doing it. But back then, especially even, in fact, before him in the 70s, back in the 50s and 60s, but into the 70s and 80s, um, it was still the Cold War, though. I think that's one of the things he doesn't yes. really ever, he doesn't really ever um, underline or stress in his book. It's like, well, America, yeah, America was engaged so in a, 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 an all or nothing, skull crushing Cold War with the so Soviets. That, that's Let, the remember bit, that. Though. That's the bit that makes me think that maybe actually it's possible that it did happen the way he described. And he was sat down by this Claudine figure and said explicitly that this is the program you're going to follow because of that Cold War context mm. which he put in. Mm. The other thing that I'd add to that is that um, at the time of this, so what would this would have been? Um, you know, seventies, early eighties. The US genuinely did think that they would reach peak oil and they were going to run out of oil. That's why you get the emergence of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 
um, and you get all of this um, sort of very overt foreign adventurism because they genuinely thought that they had to hold on to the last dwindling scraps of oils. What actually happened is you created an entire industry of people, of engineers, who were focused on efficiency and they just kept on finding ways to find more oil every year and we no longer believe in the peak oil narrative. But at mm, that, mm. that time, it would, have been, it would have been a real thing. So if you genuinely believe that, one, you're in an existential crisis of the Cold War, and two, you genuinely believe in peak oil, you could, you could make a strong argument as to why you have to do all of this stuff that he's laid out. Right, yeah. And don't forget, and he talks about it for quite a while in the book, of the original sort of OPEC oil crisis in, what, 72, 73, mm. when OPEC just said, no, we're going to, it's all to do with the Yom Kippur War and all sorts of things, mm. Nixon, all sorts of stuff. But where America realised, oh, we, are, we can be held hostage by Middle Eastern countries about over oil uh, production. Um, and so they, there was yeah. some sort of massive sea change at that point. But one last thing I just yeah. want to say about the cult, one last point really about, <clears throat> I mean, about the Cold War is that certainly in the 50s and 60s, and probably even into the early 70s, you could say, different people would probably argue this a bit differently, but um, the Soviet menace was a very real thing. You look back in, you know, probably Zoomers look back at it now and think, oh, it was all just maybe paranoid nonsense. The Cold War wasn't really all that much of a big deal. The Soviets were just people like anyone else. No, it was a real ideological Cold War in mm. the 50s and 60s at least. The, the Kremlin and the White House were looking to extend their quote-unquote spheres of influence yes. across the entire world. And, you know, out of that is born things like Korea and Vietnam. Mm. You know, sometimes you look back... Yeah, even, Ukraine even, is not the first proxy war. Mm, yeah. Right, all sorts of proxy wars, all sorts of things. And they re it, it really was sort of a competition yes. for the whole world, whether it, pretty much almost without... It, there are a few examples where it wasn't the case, but most countries in the world, even very, very, very poor places, tiny little poor places like Ecuador or something. Mm. Although, so anyway, both power blocks were looking to try and take them under their wing. Mm. Um, that was very, very, very real. Yes. At least in the 50s and 60s. Well, we, we're seeing the emergence of that now, aren't you? As you've already mentioned, with now it's the US and China. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Should we talk about um, what are the first um, sets of, uh, of, well, the first country that he describes in the book as, as, as getting into this process? Because he lays out why the EHMs, the economic hitmen, were born. Um, and he points to Iran in 1951. So this would have been Mossadegh. So um, Iran was supplying oil to the West, um, and Mossadegh was very populist, and he came in basically making the argument that foreign oil companies need to pay Iran, the Iranian people, more money. Essentially, mm -hmm. they, they want to get a higher cut of the, of the oil that's going in. And what is alleged by Perkins, and I, I don't know to what extent, I mean, maybe you know this, to, to what extent this is, this is backed up by other sources, uh, and I'm sure it is actually, that the US, uh, well, the CIA in particular, sent in Kermit Roosevelt. <laughs> um, I think there's a, was the younger brother of, of Teddy Roosevelt, the president, or something like that. No, or, wasn't he the grandson of, of, of um, Franklin Roosevelt, wasn't he? Could, could, yes, that could be it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, so, so Kermit, he goes into um, Iran mm. um, with a few million dollars, and basically he starts deploying that. So he, he finds the right people in certain industries 
and basically says, you know, here's a big lump of cash if you go out and strike and protest. Um, and he basically does that so that it generates this, this nationwide feeling. And then, and then you get the media focused at it and you get everyone looking at it. You get key protesters going in key areas. It looked like the country was rebelling. Mm. And that then led to, you know, protests that sort of rippled because, of course, there's always underlying grievances in a country. Yeah. That then led to the um, the installation of a US ally, which was the Shah of Iran. What, what did you make of this section? Yeah, so it's really complicated, actually. The story of the Shah, the last Shah of Iran, is a, mm. a, fant a fantastically eventful life, if nothing else. He overthrew his own father. Um, yes. And then in the 50s, it was actually British oil interests. Oh, was it? Originally. Okay. Um, it was when Churchill was in his second premiership in the early 50s, right. uh, where Mossadegh, Mohammed Mossadegh, um, uh, an Iranian politician, um, sort of helped overthrow the Shah, or took power for himself, and nationalised Iranian oil because it wasn't BP, it wasn't British Petroleum, it was an, an, an earlier incarnation, nevertheless. Yes. He said, now you're just absolutely exploiting us here. Mm. Like, we don't, like, Iran have got a special hatred for Britain. They call us like the, I can't remember the thing they, they call us, but like the perfidious fox or something. Like right. a wily fox that can never be trusted. That's their sort of nickname for us. Yeah, and it all goes header. back to here. Yes. Anyway, Mossadegh nationalises Iranian oil, which obviously POs a lot of oilmen hmm. all throughout the world, but particularly British. Anyway. Truman, the US president at the time, sort of greenlit his intelligence services to do something about it. This Mossadegh is not playing ball. Mm. Um, he's gone off script. Yeah, he's gone off script here. We can't have that. Mm. So he, he, well, Kermit Roosevelt was one of them, but it was one of the very, very early CIA-led overthrows. So they, they, yeah, Kermit and some other men went in there and, um, essentially fermented unrest and revolt yes. and brought the Shah back. Yes. So and that was in 1953. So that's quite early. That's before this John Perkins was involved yes, in everything. But, but what Perkins describes is that this basically taught the CIA that mm. this was a hell of a lot cheaper than a war. Right. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, got yeah, everything yeah. they wanted yeah, yeah. Um, for a few million dollars and a couple of CIA men. I mean, bargain. Yeah. So cheap and effective. Yeah. But the only problem was is that by sending in a CIA man, an official CIA man, yeah. if he gets caught, mm. that looks really bad. Mm. So he argues that basically it was from that that they had to think and they thought, well, actually, we can achieve the same results with um, corporate um, consultants, these economic hitmen, and if they get caught, well, first of all, there's no blowback on the US. But second of all, it can probably be explained away through corporate greed. We can just say, okay, well, look, that's one guy in this one corporation. He's just, he's just acting up. Um, so it's a, there's basically no blowback on the US. Mm -hmm. So it's an even... And, and then you add on to it the other layers of the scam, which is basically you get that country in debt and you spend that money in the US. And you kind of got... I mean, I have to admire it. I mean, if, if he is straight down the line... If this really happened the way that John Perkins described it, and the outcome was definitely achieved, but if it was deliberate, I've got to say that's G. I've got to take my hat off to them. I mean, they. 
Right, yeah, it's cynical as all yeah. hell, but it works. Yeah. It bloody well works. Um, the other thing why it's great to have just corporations do this sort of thing is that it means you don't have to ask Congress for money. There can never be congressional or senatorial hearings into it. Especially if the money's coming from the World Bank, it just bypasses that whole thing. Right, yeah. A so, private company yeah. like, uh, like Maine yeah. never has to show Congress all its in, yeah, all ins you and do, outs. All you do is you go to Congress and say, let's fund the World Bank to help the world. Hmm. Okay, let's do that. And you frame it as, as helping, you know, helping. And then the, the money goes from the World Bank um, on the backs of the, of the poorer countries, goes to the US corporations and so on. Yeah. So one great book I, I've read, I actually uh, read it more than once. It was such a fantastic read. I thought was The Devil's Chessboard. And yes. it is by a total lefty. And we'll find out a bit later that John Perkins is a, is a bit of a, little bit of a lefty at least, at the very least. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, Bit of an eye opener, the Devil's Chessboard, and it's all about the CIA, particularly the early CIA, and the life of Alan Dulles, the first director of Central Intelligence Agency. And perhaps now, people's perception of the CIA is that they're bungling buffoons, or everything they touch it, it turns to crap, and they're not very yeah. good at their job. Well, in the early days, straight after World War II, yeah, they were very, very, very good. And Iran and the story of the Shah and Mossadegh is one of their quite early successes where they suddenly almost, it's not quite like this, but they sort of realised the power they had. They're like, oh, my God, that worked perfectly. Yes. Oh, my God, that was yes. brilliant. Yeah. Because, uh, again, you're thinking 1953, 1952, 1953, not that long after World War II. Yeah. And there's the Korea conflict where, you know, lots and lots of, young men are getting killed and maimed. Yes. You know, tens of thousands. Um, now, presidents like Eisenhower and Truman, and then later Kennedy, um, they didn't want to do World War II level stuff. They didn't want to do career level stuff. It's very messy, very expensive, lots right. of US blowback, right. yeah. dead American boys, all that kind of stuff. Eisenhower and Truman loved using covert special forces loved using the intelligence services. They were also sort of scared of them a little bit and in hock to them and gave them too much free reign. But it's better to let the CIA try this dirty, underhanded thing than have to send half a million boys across, across the globe yep. and a third of them get killed. Yep. Um, so now, now, to be fair, per what Perkins is saying in this book is that that's still a part of it. So it's a three-stage process. Mm. So the EHMs go in first, and they try and corrupt the country. And sometimes they'll be fairly overt with the, with the leader, especially if the leader is switched on. They say, look, um, we're going to do this, and you and your family and a few other of your, of your well-connected countrymen are going to be fabulously rich. You are going to be incredibly rich. An example of the people who, who played along perfectly, and he, and he describes it because he worked on it in this book, is the House of Saud. So the House mm. of Saud went along with this all the way, and they, accept, they accepted the deal. Yeah, we will be incredibly rich, but your country will be impoverished. Mm. And so that's part one, of the, part one of the deal. If they reject part one, and it goes, it goes from the EHM to what he calls the jackals, mm. which is the CIA men. And the hitmen. And, the yeah, and the they wet. will go in, and we, we're going to come to a couple of examples in a minute when we get to our first country, of where he failed and the jackals went in and assassinated the, the troublesome president. And if, if that still doesn't work, and he uses the example later in the book of Iraq, 
the EHM fails, the Jackals failed because Saddam was a bit wily when it came to this stuff because he had worked mm. with the CIA previously. Mm. Um, then the last case, um, the last case option is you send in the troops. But so you can imagine if you are the leader of a country that has some resource or some strategic importance, you're being offered this deal. Look, you you can either be rich, or we can try and assassinate you. And even if you can defend yourself, you're not going to be able to defend yourself from the U.S. military. So yeah. we're going to win in the end. Like Panama what, and Noriega in the late eighties, you know, yeah, or Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two examples. Should we come to the first um, country on the list of the ones that you looked at, which was Guatemala? Okay. So yeah. this is so so he this is well, this is the one that I've I've started to outline at the beginning of this. So this is um, Jacob Arbenz Guzman Arben, comes in as president yeah. in in nineteen fifty one. No, so this this is not an example of the first one he worked on. This is the this is the first deployment of of the corporate the corporatocracy model. Yeah, this is still before his time. Yes, yes. But, um, yeah. This 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 was United Fruits, wasn't it? Yeah, Guatemala. Right. Yeah, so basically United Fruits dominated the country, mm-hmm. and um and and Guzman went in and he basically said he wanted to return the land rights to the to the people of the country, the, the farmers of it. And what United Fruits found is that by launching again for a few million dollars a big PR and um, lobbyist campaign, they could paint um, Guzman as a as a communist, and, and and he might have had links to Russia because, like you say, this was a Cold War period. Um, and by ginning up this feeling in the US, this propagandizing against against Arbenz Guzman, um, basically United Fruits triggered the US establishment to take out Arbenz for them. Mm. And then the new president immediately restored everything to United Fruits and a handful of other corporations. Yeah. Yeah. So again, just enormously effective use of money. You know, United Fruits could not pay for an invasion of, of Guatemala, but they could afford to drop a couple of million on a, a PR and, and lobbyist campaign. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.